Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Father, thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for loving us, calling us to be your children. Thank you for Dr. Tackett and, and his uh, engagement project and, and the motivation and the stirring that does within us to be engaged with the folks around us. And this morning, as we conclude that, we trust that you would be honored by it and that we would apply it to our lives and make a difference in the, in the lives of people around us. Give us a great time this morning as we worship you through our fellowship and our study and our music. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, this is a question and answer concerning the entire 10 tours. We finished tour nine last week, but remember, we started with tour zero. I, I was looking at this and I go, I'm so confused. I've missed a tour somewhere. 10 tours, we only did nine. Where's 10? Then I realized that we started with zero. So, um, yeah. Messed me up for, for a whole 10 minutes yesterday. I, was, I, I can't find it. I, what's the deal? Okay, here we go. Um, tour, or 10 tours, question and answer. Okay, my friends, we have finished the engagement project. All 10 tours. And again, I can't tell you what a delight it was uh, for me to have the opportunity to go through this with you. And I would be more than happy to take you on tours again anytime you want to. Who knows? It may be long before you'll have to take me on a tour. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> what we want to do now is to just spend some time reflecting on what God has said to us. Not me, but what has God said to us? We've looked at a lot. Uh, we had a good opportunity after each tour to stop and think about what has struck us. But now we want to sit back and think about everything that we've gone through <clears throat> and to ask the question, what, what has God done here? What has he done in my life or what am I feeling like he's doing? Because it may not be a finished product. It's not with me. I know that. Uh, what is he doing? So this is, this is your time. And if there are still some lingering questions uh, that you want to bring up, it may be possible that Nancy has an answer or, <laughs> or Hector has an answer. That's okay. That's what, this is our, our small group discussion time. So I'll just turn that over, over to you. Going back to the vision of uh, engaging, I think you um, had in there, our Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what you mean by yeah. our Jerusalem? And I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, that city has a very specific meaning to people in the Middle East, for example. It sure does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that has been used uh, repeatedly uh, for a long, long time. 
in, in the Christian concept of what Jesus said in Acts 117, 1.18. Uh, when he told his disciples, he said that you were going to be my witnesses and that you were going to start in Jerusalem and then go to Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so that has been used uh, by Christians uh, a long, long time to then apply what Jesus is saying to those disciples uh, to us where we are. That God wants us to do the same thing. He wants us to start in our Jerusalem. That will move to the outer Judea and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So that's how we're using, using it there. It, it is not referring to the Jerusalem in Israel. It's referring to where we are. And to some extent, that is what we understand Jesus was saying to them. You know, you know I want you to be my witnesses, and I want you to start here, and then that will move out, and that will go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Remember, that's exactly what we were talking about, right? That's how God works, right? He starts with a little plant, and that little plant has seeds, the tree has seeds, that moves outward and that moves outward. So that's that same, the same principle. That's what we're referring to there. Yeah. Good question. Dr. Tackett. Yes, Kathy. As far as uh, something that struck me, and there have been so many things <laughs> that have struck me, um, right. but I would say two, the two that are at the forefront of my mind are the triune nature of the Lord that dwells within us, you know, and in the sense that I had always before thought of it as, oh, you know, it's just the Holy Spirit, but it's the Father, it's the Son, it's the Holy Spirit, it's the fullness of God. Um, and I think that was mind-blowing to me and what, how that comforted me in terms of I am equipped to do what He's called me to do. Um, so I think that was one thing. The other thing was, the obstacle to that, which, or one of the obstacles was, you know, the self-centeredness aspect of it. And realizing if you do away with yourself, there's so much freedom in that, you know, and um, when you start to focus on others, you're no longer trapped by, well, my script says this. And so if it doesn't go this way, then the whole world is, you know, kind of just deteriorating as a result. So um, I was grateful for those those two things among the hundreds of other things yeah. that struck me, but yeah. Well, you know, Catherine, the, that first concept the, that God dwells within us, uh, and that's why we went through that because the scripture tells us, right? You know, when Jesus said, you know, that the Father and I will come and make our abode in you. And then, of course, we know that the Holy Spirit comes in us. And to some extent, I remember when I first started thinking about it, I said, well, duh. I mean, you know, we don't serve three separate gods, you know, and it's not like, okay, the Holy Spirit's over here and the Father's over there. And no, that splits him apart. And so that has struck me as well. It continues to strike me. And... And I'm not struck enough by it because I, I don't really understand that. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know that I truly believe it because if I truly believed it, I think my life would be different than it is right now. And that's why we have to tell ourselves the truth. And that goes back to, remember the diagram we were trying to, you know, in our old finite way to talk about the heart and mind. You know, what will change 
uh, how I act and how I feel. Well, it's believing the truth of God. And the Holy Spirit has to help in that. And the Holy Spirit works through other people. That's why we need each other. And that's something we have to remind ourselves. And I have to do that as well. It's almost like a daily thing. I have to get up and thank God that somehow, for whatever reason, he has chosen to take up abode in me. Well, I mean, really, honestly, we can say it right now. And I'm still not sure I can believe that, that God himself dwells within me. So, yeah, I, that, boy, if that doesn't strike all of us, then, you know, maybe we're a little too dense. So, yeah, thank you by that. So, yes, anything well, something that struck me was um, the balance between truth and love. Mm. And yeah, that was just an eye-opener. Um, that truth on its own is, is insufficient and love on its own is insufficient and how we have to um, really just follow the Holy Spirit's prompting um, as He leads us to, to balance those two. Um, and that was just a, an mm. eye-opener and how um, the other thing is the, the chesed, love of God. Huh. and how amazing that is and um, our role is, as Christians to uh, show people that yeah. uh, you know to be his ambassadors mm. Mm. to a world that desperately needs the chesed love of God do. yeah. don't you love the way Nancy says that word <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it again <laughs> don't we all wish we could say it that way um, okay Nancy so let me uh, ask you this question about the the way that truth and love are woven together, and I'm convinced of that. They're, uh, they're an inseparable thing, and you can't even really think about one without the other to some extent. You, you know, we can, but uh, in, in operation and in action, uh, obviously they go together. That's what the scripture says. So tell me a little bit about what you think is the reason why we have a tendency to go one way or the other in these? Um, well, I tend to focus more on the truth aspect uh, of it. And I think when I do that, it's, it's, it's more about me and my script wanting to come across. And, uh, um, you know, it feels good to feel smart and to have people think I'm smart. And that I have, you know, I don't. But sometimes I, I like to feel like I have the right answers and just the right argument. But... I don't. I'm finite. Um, so it's, again, all about my script and being, uh, you know, stuck in my, my script, and that's horrible. Um, and then if we go to the extreme of love, um, I think it's, if we define love in the right way, we won't be stuck in that. But if we define love as just this, you know, like you said, just this feely thing, the superficial love, um, then it, it can sound easier that we're just stuck in that. Um, rather than offering the, the true chesed love of God uh, and balancing that with God's truth. Um, yeah. You know, even as you say that, I am, I guess, reminded and convicted how I feel I am the same way. I have a tendency, and I think, quite frankly, most, probably the majority of what we'll call evangelical Christians would lean that way. My guess is. But I've been in situations where you are around people that you know think totally differently. 
And the pull to just want to be accepted there and a part of the, you know, holding a hand and, you know, you don't want to be on the mountain with everybody holding hands and, and singing, you know, love the world. And then you stand there like, you know, right? It just, yeah, I don't want to be that. I want to, I want to be part of this love gush kind of a thing. I, I feel that as well. I really do. And, you know, that's the pull. That's the pull. But again, we go back and we go through the truth as you expressed as well. So, good. Yeah, those are realities. Those are realities of our, our walk. Del, all those one another's that you listed, love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. I would like to get those slides. <laughs> um, but can you... Um, maybe sharpen that a little bit for me? Like, is, are we doing that with other believers? Are we also extending that type of love to our neighbors? Like, who are the one another's for? Yeah, and it's a, it's a really a good question. We probably didn't make that clear enough uh, in, in our tour. And you will get all the slides. <laughs> you have all of those. But this one another, if we look at the scripture and the way this is used, and all, remember all of those verses we had uh, where that phrase is used, love one another, love one another. This is your command to love one another. It is abundantly clear that this is believers. When Jesus said, the world will know that the Father has sent me because of your love for one another, that, that is a clear picture of us, the family of God, and our love for one another. This is not... Um, Remember in C.H. Lewis's capital H, Humanity, this is not a, a capital O, capital A, one another, where we just love, you know, love everybody. Uh, this is for us. And so that was what led us to talk about how do you do that? If you look at all of the descriptions of that, admonish one another, pray for one another, all of those, those are family things that God is calling us to do. And we can't do that in a, in a broad way. You just can't. It is impossible for us. And then we referred to Jesus, who, you know, Jesus, the Son of God, God himself walking on the earth, was bound in the physical world. He got hungry. Uh, he bled. And... He was finite, and he poured himself into those three people. I think that's an example for us as well, you know, that we have to realize. The world will constantly, I'll repeat this again, the world will constantly pull you, your flesh will pull you to think it's got to be big. And when, as soon as you start thinking of that, then you open up your script and look if it's not based upon a promise of you being significant. And I know we could have a pious thing there as well. You know, well, no, I just, want, I just want a lot of people to know Jesus. Of course we want that. But in terms of loving one another, for example, you can't do it. You just can't have that kind of a deep relationship unless it's a small number of people. So, all of those commands to love one another are about the body of Christ and the family of God. 
and, uh, and our call for our own good to be involved in that kind of a deep relationship with another believer. Loving our neighbor uh, are people that can be believers or they can be unbelievers or they could be hostile. You know, they can, uh, they can be the person that actually hates God, hates Christians. Uh, they can be an agnostic. Uh, they can be a Mrs. Smith across the street. Um, or they could be an, a nominal Christian or a Christian, you know, uh, sometimes people call it an Easter cr Christmas Christian. You know, they put the lights up on Christmas, but there, there is no real life in there. Uh, those, those are the people that God has providentially placed around us. So there's a clear distinction here. Does that help yeah. make that distinction? That's a great, great question. And um, one we need to make clear with people. And, I, and again, I, I just want to encourage you to consider in wherever you are in your stage of life, and I know that will make a little bit of a difference, but wherever you are in your stage of life, to realize God wants you to be in these deep relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. And seek it. Seek that. And commit to it. Pursue it. And ask Him for it. The idea of fruitfulness, the three types of fruitfulness, I would just like to hear more are those um, independent of each other for each individual? You know, like for example, the Apostle Paul wasn't able to have, or Jesus for that matter, did not have fruitfulness of the womb. Or I think of single people or, um, you know, so just wanted to hear more on that. Um, you know, remember we talked about uh, the scripture lays out three fundamental areas where we as human beings uh, are to flourish. And one uh, was to flourish physically. You know, Adam and Eve were brought together. Uh, Malachi says that he desires them to be one. Why? Because he seeks godly offspring. Okay, none of that basic design has changed. That is still there. Uh, and I'll come back to that, because that, I think, is the heart of your question. And then the second was that we are to be fruitful vocationally. Adam was placed in the garden, and, and they were then called to um, physically flourish vocationally. In that case, it was agricultural-wise and, and so forth. In our case today, we have a myriad of vocations that people are involved in, and we should seek those vocations that actually um, bring forth fruit. There are vocations that don't bring forth fruit. In fact, there are vocations that actually suck the fruit out of other people. And, and I believe as a Christian, you need to be wary of those. But we are to be fruitful vocationally. And, then, and the third one, Remember, we said that we, all of us, are to be fruitful ministerially. And, of course, that's what we talked about in the royal law, right? That it's an amazing thing that God has entrusted the primary work of the kingdom to us ministerially. 
So the, the question that, uh, that I think you're seeking there is a question that uh, centers around the notion of singleness. And I will give you my perspective on it. Uh, and for those of you who've been in, in my class at the Institute, we may or not have gone through this. It came up a lot because there is a generation now uh, different than most every generation before us that now has moved uh, from the position where singleness was a calling now to the notion that marriage is a calling. That you're fundamentally to be single unless God calls you to marriage. I don't think that's biblical. I think that's backwards. I think the reason that we uh, lean towards singleness is primarily because of our scripts. Now, we, and our fear of being involved in a sacrificial relation. There's all kinds of things that are playing into that. And I know that the appeal often is to the passage in Corinthians, uh, where Paul, Paul talks uh, about that. But I always say, let's go back and look at the context of that passage. And if you go back and look at it, you will see that when Paul makes a statement, Paul is not overturning the rest of the entirety of Scripture that God has called. When he says it is not good for man to be alone, Paul is not saying, now that's not true. That is not what he's saying. He's not overturning the institution of marriage and family. He's not doing that. But if you look at the context, he's saying, he's talking about in these, uh, what's the word in there? Do you know, Hector? In these difficult times, he's talking about the difficult times. Remember, they were about to go through 70 AD. They were about to go through one of the most horrific uh, periods of time. And, and Paul is talking about that. And that's why, that's the context there. He's not overturning the whole thing. Now, in light of that, however, it's just the same thing, remember, I was saying that I, when I was teaching in the seminary, I felt like one of my jobs was to get guys out of the seminary. Why? Because when they say, when I, I say, well, why, why are you here? And they say, well, it's because I love God. I say, wrong answer. Because you're implying that everyone who loves God ought to be here in seminary, you know, getting our degree and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's, that's wrong. And so if you haven't been called to that, then, you, you, you know, if you're called to be a farmer, I don't want you here. But if you're called to be a pastor, you better not be out farming a field. And I mean that nominally because Paul actually was involved in vocation, remember? He tended, I mean, he, uh, he was a tent maker. And so he maintained that vocation while he did his ministry. But his, uh, his words that are there in, in 1 Corinthians, which is the only place in all of Scripture where we... And isn't it amazing how we always gravitate, we want to pull this piece out in order to justify what we want to do. He's not overturning all the scripture. What is clear is that people can be called to singleness. And that is supported throughout the rest of the scripture. And so I will say the same thing. If you're called to singleness, then you better not say I do at an altar. 
but we need to be sure of that calling and not that we pursue that. Why? Because we would rather be control of our own life. And, and the, this will upset the cart even more that I have talked to students who've gotten married and say, well, we're not going to have kids. And when we first talk about that, I get this pious response, well, you know, it's just a difficult world and so forth. But the bottom line is it's because they don't want to be bothered with children. It's their script again. And now God is the one who brings those children, but I'm talking about the conscious decision to say, you know, we're not going to be fruitful in our marriage, in the physically fruitful in our marriage. And I say, you know, go, go back and look at what is, what is God doing here? And... and um, and you better have a really good reason and calling from God to go against that design. Does that make sense, Joel? I know it's not, this is not well accepted, especially in our culture today. I understand that. But I'm just saying, look, I'm going to stand by what I, I, I see here. So. Just thinking about, uh, like, how would a widow think about fruitfulness of the womb or somebody who struggles with infertility, for example? Um, I know there's options for adoption and things like that, but how do they begin to think about this idea of being fruitful in all three different types? Well, uh, remember again that um, there are always uh, there are always things in a fallen world that are going to prevent us. There are people who physically cannot have children. And, um, and this is a tough thing, too. We dealt with this in the cross-examine thing, and, and it was really tough. People didn't like it. Every place in the scripture that talks about a woman being barren is in the context of God closing her womb. Every one of them. Are we willing to accept that from the Lord? And this was in the, remember, these are in the shows we did where we were talking about uh, the snowflake babies, about uh, people adopting those frozen embryos. And, there, and we talked about, okay, there is a, somewhere there is a line over which you're trying to kick against God. You know, you can go a certain way, you can have some tests done, maybe there's whatever, there's this or that and so on and so forth. But there's a, there's a point at which you ought to begin to recognize, I am trying to force my script here on that. So there are, there are things in a fallen world that will um, put boundaries on some of the ways that we can be fruitful. I would see we could do the same thing in terms of vocational fruitfulness. You know, some people have limitations physically that they can't do certain things and, and, and so forth. And the same would be true in, in, in ministry. We were talking also about the whole notion, well, what, what does a single woman do here? And we talked about the, the, you know, having a, a, a life group, having a group of believers to help you in that is important. And the same is true now. The scripture is very clear in many cases about a widow and, and, and the, and the uh, responsibilities of a widow to teach others and, and, and so forth. So she may have already been fruitful physically. If she's a widow, she was married, maybe she, maybe the Lord uh, allowed them to have children and she has, she has produced physically. 
And, you know, it's just like people who, when you get older, you don't have children anymore. That doesn't mean you're no longer fruitful. You have been fruitful. And my responsibility now is the fruitfulness of those offspring. You know, my children, my grandchildren. You know, if the Lord allows, I may have great-grandchildren. And I will, I will have a responsibility, you know, even if I'm, if the Lord allows me to be 90 years old, I will still feel a responsibility to be part of the fruitfulness of my great-grandchildren and even my children. So a widow, and I think you'll see this confirmed in the scripture, what is, what is the widow? Her job is to continue to teach the younger women and, and so forth. So there is a, <clears throat> and this is in a family context here. This is the fruitfulness in a family. See, the fruitfulness in the family is not just the physical bearing of children. I mean, that just, that just pops them up in the world. And now, you know, you've got, you have a whole lot of fruitfulness that needs to be done with Asa and with your new child. It, it's just not just the physical thing that they've arrived. In fact, that's, you know, you know, that's, that's step point zero one in the whole ball of wax here, right? And you already know that. So the fruitfulness that you and Esther are going to be bearing in Ace's life uh, is still yet to come. You've already done it and you'll continue to do it. Does that help at all, Joel, yes, in terms of what we're Thank talking you. about? Okay. Sorry, that's too long of an ad. But that's a, that's a real critical piece that we need to address. It's good to include. I think there's a lot of people that will watch this and they'll have a longing. Like, I want to be fruitful physically and there's grief there. So it's, it's good for them to not feel like they're missing it or there's something right. wrong with them. It's like there's other areas that God can right. flourish them in and wants to see them flourish. And yeah. Yeah, because that's a great point, Esther, because let's talk about uh, a couple in whom God has closed the womb. How in the world can they be fruitful? Well, they, let me tell you, our, our culture is in dire need of couples who love each other and manifest that love for each other, that, you know, that unconditional love. We didn't get a chance to talk about this, but I'll do it now. And that is, think about what we talked about in terms of what true agape love means. And recognize now that you, Joel, you, what, is, what does the scripture charge you in terms of Esther? To love my wife like Christ loves the church. Yes. That means that you are to look at Esther with a steadfast, sacrificial zeal that seeks her shalom. That's how you love her. Now, you can, you know, you can give her a box of chocolates, you know, and so forth. Jewelry, flowers. <laughs> Flower, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah you, you know, you can do all, all of that stuff, and that's, the, you know, that's fine. But if you want to truly love your wife, it means you look at her, and you are zealously seeking, how can I help my wife flourish? Because that's your job. Your job 
is to seek her shalom. That's what it means to love your wife. Now, when you do that, you are bearing fruit. And when she respects you, and she also loves you too, the scripture calls her to love you too, but when she respects you, the world looks at that and go, I want that. Because I don't see that. And it also helps young people who have now been sold the notion that, oh, marriage, you know, why? Because they see a lot of the enemy playing around in, in marriage and divorces and so forth. And now they look, and we've, you know, this is not me, it's primarily Melissa, my wife. People have looked at our marriage and they've said those things. And I'm grateful for that. Why? Because God has allowed our marriage to help encourage other people. And um, so that's being fruitful. And it's being fruitful for even couples who have the wound closed. They can still, there's a lot of fruit to be born there, and they're bearing it in according to the way with God has them there at that, at that point. Okay, good, great. I wish every husband would begin to recognize what it means when the scripture says you are to love your wife. As Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up. Gave himself up. That's true agape love. That is hesed love. Sacrificial love. Seeking her shalom. That I would make a difference in our marriages, wouldn't it? Tell, I, I don't think I have a question. I have a comment because you're asking me to reflect on all these tours, and I'm I'm finding myself fighting the urge to want to perform. Maybe this is mm. my script getting in the way, <laughs> right? So I'm thinking, okay, how do I implement this? And let's go and put a plan together, and let's go and as I kind of process through that, I find myself thinking, well, then there's this obstacle, and well, if I do this, then I've got that to deal with. And, and I think when you were mentioning, I think it may have been Catherine who may have asked a question, and you said, it all begins with prayer. I quickly realized that this is, that's a scheme. I'm falling into the trap. Yeah. That to carry this out is is a scheme because I want to do this in my flesh rather than oh, great comment. allowing the Lord to kind of lead us through this entire yeah. process. Yeah. So just no, that's that's an excellent excellent observation, Hector. Because you know what we're back to again. We're back to our writing our own script, and now we think, wow, what a pious script! I'm going to write a script on loving my neighbor, and this is how it's going to work. Or maybe, you know, let, let me change that. Let me change this. And, and then we get invested in how we think it ought to go. I guarantee you've got to say, no, that's not how it's going to go. That's not how it'll go. And so, that, yeah, that's my advice. It, it, okay, we start here. And, um, and I've already told you, I am absolutely convinced. You start here and, and uh, Katie bar the door and sit back and watch. Now, no. When we ask God for something that we know is his will, then we immediately know what his will is. And we immediately know that we are to do his will. 
So we don't then pray and then go sit on the couch and eat potato chips. There is also an action here. And so, uh, you know, we pray and then make ourselves available too. Um, it's just like Christian, remember? What a great story. She's convicted and she doesn't really know what to do. And I think God will do this in you as well. I want you to be confident in this. You know, the thing with the turquoise table, I mean, that's, but that was Christian's. So God, now there'll be a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to make a, a turquoise table, put it, and I said, no, don't do that yet. You know, let God, because God may, God may have you put a, a, an orange stool. I don't know, you know, just making it up. He is going to lead you. He will lead you. You know, yes, we can make plans, but we need to be very quick to say, not my will, but your will be done. That, yeah, so thanks, Hector. That, I mean, that's, that's awesome. See, you should not feel any burden by this. If you, here, I'll put it this way. If you feel a burden, then we're missing something. If this sounds burdensome to you, then we got to go back through this <laughs> and we talk about this. His commands are not burdensome. In fact, I would say in reality, this should be exciting. That's something, so I guess I, I'm feeling a lot more freedom after this because having three young kiddos, you know, three, three four and under, is a lot in our house. I mean, before children, it, you know, it looked wonderful. Um, and now it looks very lived in, um, which is also wonderful. And, and my, my script says, I want to present and do the Southern hospitality to the T and have everything just so. Well, that's a lot of work. And I need like an army to help me do that. And then tell my kids to sit still, which doesn't happen in order to be able to have people over and it look how my script says I want it to look. But that's not authentic neighbor relationship. And if I am going to let people just come in my house, lived in, and, but that's what, I appreciate that when somebody lets me into their house when they haven't cleaned up. Um, and so to me, you can't, you can't do the presentation to the fullest and be authentic at the same time and be open at any time for them to come over. Um, you know, it's like, oh, well, come on in. Well, I actually don't. <laughs> um, you know, and so to me, I'm feeling a whole lot more freedom to just go, hey, this is a season of life we're in, and I love this, and welcome in, and if you're okay with it, come and let's sit down and talk for a little bit. And the kids can be a part in running around because that's what it looks like as a young mom. And so I'm feeling a lot more freedom to just be in the season that I'm in. The Lord knows that. And that's okay. Yeah. So it, it doesn't have to be these social media pictures of what it looks like yeah. to, you know. <clears throat> Melissa, I need for you to somehow go around and tell that story to everybody because a lot of people are going to have that same concern that my house has to be neat. And I, I don't know if this is true, I'll say it, and then we can talk about whether you think it or not. If I walk into a home, somebody's invited me to their home in a neighborly way, 
and you walk in and it is just clinically clean, <laughs> then I don't feel like I'm a neighbor coming over. I feel like there's almost like an agenda here. But if I walk into your home and, you know, the kid has just spilled Cheerios over there and life is going on here, man, I feel like I am now a friend. I don't feel like I'm a friend if I come in and it's all spick and span. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because friends, you know, we don't clean up for friends. And so if I clean up, I, th- I think, you tell me what, I think it's not a friend. You're not a friend yet. When you start coming over and, and you know, I've got stain down my shirt because I've been feeding Alexander, now you're a friend. Because I'll let, is that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, this is maybe silly, and I don't know if this is cross-cultural and even within the subcultures of our nation, but growing up in the South, it's an expectation for a lot of people to wear makeup all the time. And I have a good friend who said, the closer I am to somebody, the less makeup I wear around them. And it's like, let's just be like that. You know, like, let's just be normal. And hey, come on and be in my life. And, and I think about Jesus and he welcomed the children. He didn't say, oh, hey, go be quiet. Or hey, sit still and like, don't talk. Um, like, because he, he knew how he created them. And so, but to me, that gives even more freedom and even more engagement to let my kiddos be in the midst of it because that's real. And sometimes that's the biggest icebreaker there is, you know, like have my son smile at people, you know, and then they, then they smile and then it just breaks the ice and it's not so stiff. And what it also does is it puts a, um, it puts a window on when you can be a neighbor. Exactly. Right? It, I can't, oh, I can't be a neighbor now. Probably at the time you need to be a neighbor to someone. So, yeah, that's, that's really awesome, Melissa. And that's, that's when we're not caring about what we look like. And that's, that's the uh, true meaning of dying to self. Yeah. We're, we're not on the radar. I mean, we're, yeah. Where does the church fit into all this because we know that Christ loves the church and as believers we're called to not forsake the assembly but I could see potentially somebody thinking I'm so busy doing a great job loving my neighbor carrying this out that I don't need to go to church or maybe so how does this fit with the church Mm -hmm. yeah well, let's, first of all, let's, uh, let's be careful how we use the word uh, church uh, because it's easy for us to say church and think of the institution in the building o- over, over there on the corner of whatever um, as opposed to thinking of the ecclesia, the, the, the body of Christ. Both those words are used in both different, in, in those two ways in the scripture. So we need to acknowledge those <clears throat> as a journal of the body of Christ and then that local institution where we have leaders that are appointed and ordained to some extent. <clears throat> 
I'm going to give you my response to that, and then let's, let's talk about it. We mentioned Ephesians chapter 4. I think we did. Maybe we didn't. The design for the church. And that God had appointed the leaders of the church, and this is speaking now institutionally, okay, because now we're talking about uh, leaders in the, in the church, that he appointed the leaders in the church, and their job was to equip, train, equip, equip the, saints. the saints for the work of ministry. I read that, and I think the saints have been entrusted with the primary work of the kingdom, and the leaders in the institutional church job is to equip them in that work. My observation is that that's upside down today, which is exactly what happens in a fallen world. It all flows that way if we're not careful. It's kind of like, what are those little dolls, you know, have the weight in the bottom, you know, that they, you know, that the world keeps trying to tip it upside down. And so now, in most cases, the saints once again think that their job is to equip the staff, and then the staff does the work of ministry. And that's backwards. So, uh, to answer your question, what I dream, what would it be like if a pastor had this vision and let's say I'm the pastor and this is the congregation we're gathering together on the Lord's Day why because the scripture calls us to do so and why because we want to do that why because there's joy in the assembly of the saints in corporate worship and we have the privilege to do the Lord's Supper together and, and, and to baptize our children. And, and so we, we long to gather together and, and to worship. But here I'm now as, as, the, as your pastor. <laughs> and we're gathering together. And I share the vision that you have now. And when we come together, I say, how's it going out there? Mm -hmm. Tell testimonies. How's the work of ministry yeah. going out there? Hmm. And Doug says, man, I live, I live across the street from somebody who just hates God because her, her husband died a horrible death of cancer, painful, painful death. And she, she prayed to God, and he still died, and now she hates God. And I said, okay, let's talk about that. How do we deal with people who are suffering from what we call academically the problem of evil, right, Nancy? This is an apologetic thing, the problem of evil. And the first thing we do is we weep with her. And, um, and, and we're geared now towards ministering to her in that 
uh, in that state. And so, do you understand now? What we're doing is we're gathering together to be equipped for the ministry. And I'm now, I want to learn uh, about what is going on out there through your ministry so that I can better equip you as opposed to, and I don't, I don't know how we can do this without being critical, as opposed to saying, here's what I want to teach today. And again, I don't want that to be demeaning at all. But in light of the design that we see in the scripture, I would think as a pastor, my responsibility is to equip you. And if I don't know what's happening in the ministry out there, how am I going to know how to best equip you? Well, we don't have time because we're going to all your programs. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, as your pastor, I'm involved in your life. And I want to know what Esther and Joel are doing. I want to know about your family. I want to know. Now, not to meddle. I'm not talking about that. But I want to know those things. I want to know what Molly is facing you know, in her apartment complex or whatever that is. I want to know what Nancy's facing, you know, with people around her who have a different religion and, and culture. I want to know that. Why? So that I can do what God has called me to do. My job is to equip you in that. And if I don't know what equipping you need, then I, I'm not really fulfilling the role I want. So, Joel, what I'm in my answer to you is that the church doesn't go away here. And if it goes away, then we have misunderstood God's design. And we probably are following our own script to say, you know, I don't need the church. You do. We do need the gathering of the saints. Why? Because the scripture calls us to do so. And there's joy in that. But the the church and the leaders in the church need to operate according to that biblical design and the people need to op operate according to that design. Does that, or do we want to talk some more about this? Can I, can I say no. something here? Um, there was a girl that lived across the street from us when we lived on Whetstone and I hadn't thought about this a long time. I remember standing in her front yard with her saying, I'm so busy being a Christian, I don't have time for God. I think we, it's, there's a tendency of, uh, for us that have been Christians for a long time to be so ingrained in the Sunday school answers that we forget where we've been. We are the people who hate God, even now. When things run up in our face, and as somebody said, if you hadn't had a crisis in your life yet, saddle up because it's coming. There are times, right, I mean, not this very second, fortunately, but you know some of them where, I mean, I hated what God was allowing. I am Mrs. Smith across the street. I have been and I will be. 
when I have to wrestle with where in the world is God in what's going on right now. That is an ongoing thing that we're going to all face. And one of the things that, if I were to kind of put it in a nutshell, what I've learned from the Truth Project and what I think you're offering the average Christian that wants to be involved and doesn't know what to do, is the Truth Project took a lot of very important truth that I could be blinded by the facts and it kind of moved them out of the way and said, where you always start is the nature of God. If you know the nature of God and, and you can get all the details out of the way for a minute and get back to that, then it starts to open up and you can see again. And, and that's what the Truth Project did for me is it got a lot of details out of the way that I was trying to get my significance from. You know, I can argue you in the ground because I know the scripture. But that's not the point. The point is, who is this God? You've said it over and over and over. So now we, we come from that general pattern of there's a, there's a path through all of this chaos where God is consistently there every single time. And then we get to the engagement and you say, love your neighbor. Well, now I know what that means. And what's the truth is, is it's natural. We were made for relationship. That gets hidden because of fears and wounds and all kinds of stuff. But that's what we're all after. And we, and we do it. You know, we go play golf. We go play tennis. We go fishing. We go hunting. We go camping. You know, we're, we're gathering all these people around. But when it comes to loving them in the Lord, somehow that's over here. You do that separately. Well, you don't. Hector, you wanted to respond, and then we'll. Yeah, we'll bring I just want to go back close. to Joel's question because I just had, I guess, you just clarified something. I had an epiphany. So, if I hear this correctly, oftentimes pastors see small groups, programs as competing with the church. But if I'm understanding you right, and I think I am, this really could be complementary to pastors. Because we, and I've been in healthcare for 30 years, so forgive the analogy, but so you're saying we can become like the, the nerve endings to our communities. We, we will have a finger on the pulse by knowing exactly where ministry ought to be in the community. And so if I'm understanding this correctly, and I understand how the body works, you're basically saying we could relay this back up to the church and the pastor becomes a part of the process in ministering to a local community through us. Is that what I'm hearing? Did yeah, I have that I right? Think the, I think that's, uh, that's right. In fact, I, let, me, let me say this. If I were a pastor and pastoring the way I think we normally do today, where I'm carrying the whole spiritual load here, and, and you guys are writing a check and I'm really at the, the pointy point of the spear of ministry, and now I turn that around, I just have a, a lot of bricks just taken off my back. Mm -hmm. My responsibility now is, is to you 
and you're doing the work of the ministry. And yes, as I hear what's going on out there, I am better equipped myself then to be able to equip my flock. Because that's my, my charge is to equip my flock so that you can do the work of the ministry. You are the ones who are going to turn the world upside down, not me. Okay. I think the last thing that he describes there, I think that's what we are trying to do here. And uh, it, I don't know how to, to describe it any other way. So questions, comments? Yeah, it is good stuff. Yeah. We may, when we're done with uh, case-making course, we may go back and do the enhanced or the, the refreshed, uh, I forget what adjective they used, um, truth project. It has new stuff in it. We may do that and then do this again. Because there's so much stuff in here that you just can't absorb it all. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for loving us, calling us to be your children. Thank you for this series and, and the other series that we've been going through. And next week as we begin um, the case-making course that uh, we would understand how to, to engage our neighbors, how to have conversations with them, how to talk to them about you, and how to just be neighbors and uh, see the love of Jesus uh, given to them. Give us a great time in the service to follow that you might be honored and glorified. We love you in Jesus' name.